If your parents or grandparents bought a house in America during the post-war boom years, they and you benefit from a system of racial oppression that encouraged white wealth building through home ownership with one hand and held back black families with the other. Mine did, and I do. This isn't the episode I was planning to record this week, but I hope you'll stick around and use these minutes to think about how the history of housing discrimination in this country affects the mid-century houses we love and the world we all live in. Hey there. Welcome back to Mid-Mod Remodel. This is usually the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid-century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid-century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 9. Today I'm taking a pause from our regularly scheduled programming on how to update your house. Look, I really believe in the mission of this podcast to help homeowners make the most of the houses they have, to tweak them without expanding them too much, to age in place and stay in mid-century neighborhoods closer to urban centers rather than moving out to newer suburban developments, to keep housing right-sized. And I'll be getting back to all of those themes soon, but this just doesn't feel like the time. Like a lot of people, I've soaked up the news this past week. I've been sickened and frustrated and not really surprised yet again by the combination of individual malice and systemic racism that is our country's original sin. Watching George Floyd killed on camera was horrific. But what's more horrifying is that we only know his name because there was someone there with a cell phone. The anger and frustration that's coming out in protests around America is justified by our long history of racial oppression. I don't know how to fix this, but I'm looking for ways that I can contribute to a solution by being more actively anti-racist. So I thought I would use this week's podcast to talk about how systemic racism is baked in to the mid-century neighborhoods we all love. We need to acknowledge that history and start talking about what we can do to make positive changes in our own lives and communities. I'm going to be throwing a lot of facts, figures, and references out in this episode, and you'll find show notes with the links to the things I reference and a handy summary of everything I'm about to say on my website at midmod-midwest.com slash 309. I'm talking today about housing discrimination for two reasons. One, I'm an architect with a podcast about remodeling mid-century homes. So housing is one of the aspects of racism that affects my own life and passions most closely. The other is that I'm a white liberal who lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Housing discrimination is one of the chief ways that white liberals sidestep the issue of racism. When we live in pre-segregated communities, we don't have to see or address systemic racism on a daily basis. Housing discrimination has already separated us from most of the Black people in our communities. This is uncomfortable for me to say, and I imagine it will be uncomfortable to hear, but it needs to be talked about because taking it for granted is white privilege. Our homes, where we live, determine so much of our daily experience. The work that's accessible, the stores where we shop, the education kids can get, how safe and convenient it is to walk around and get the daily exercise that doctors recommend the cleanliness of air and water, and the value and wealth-building capacity of our homes. Plus, most of the taxpayer services in this country are based on our location. This isn't an accident. The granular nature of how we pay our money to the government in taxes and get it back in social services means that if you separate where you live from where other people live and you make your civic boundaries small enough, you can ensure that your contribution to society comes back only to people that look and sound like you without one overtly racist law or rule. The other thing that housing does in America is build wealth. If you own your home, you are using it to build wealth. And I don't mean that in the sense of riches necessarily, but a body of money or resources that are not tied to your income, perhaps retirement savings or property. In America, 
Home ownership is the key to wealth. A home is equity. It's an incentive to save incrementally, month by month. You can sell it for cash or borrow against it with a reverse mortgage. You can give it to your kids or draw from its value to help pay for their education. You can move from one house to another without having fully paid off the first one through recognized loan structures. And in this country, we have systemically encouraged home ownership for white families while making it difficult or impossible for black ones. I'd like to turn to the podcast While Black. Hosts Vince and Art chat with Atlanta real estate historian and agent Andrea Morgan in the episode from September 15th, 2018. They quote a Duke University study on racial wealth gaps. I'll link to the study on the podcast in the show notes. The average black family has just one-tenth the wealth of the average white family in America. Black Americans living near the poverty line have no familial wealth, meaning their debts equal their assets. But white families living near the poverty line have an average of $18,000 in assets they can turn to as a safety net. And that wealth gap persists no matter what black families earn. The average net worth of a black family with college degrees is lower than that of a white family without high school educations. If that doesn't make sense to you, then allow me to redirect our conversation back to home ownership. To address this, we need to start just before the mid-century era, which is my particular focus. Before the Great Migration, most of America's black population lived in the rural South. They were largely controlled and kept down by what we now call Jim Crow laws. To escape this overt racism and oppression, and to get access to new industrial jobs created by World War I, one and a half million black people moved from the South to northern cities between 1916 and 1940. They took jobs in Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Baltimore, and New York City. It wasn't a picnic. The work available was difficult and unsafe, and they were competing for housing and jobs with recent European immigrant groups and returning World War I veterans. The Great Depression slowed this pull down, but it started back up again during World War II, and by 1970, six million black people in total had relocated from the South to the Northeast, Midwest, and West. In the North, there weren't the same Jim Crow laws on the books to govern and control the lives of black people, but there was a different system that accomplished the same goals, housing discrimination. Tanhasi Coates describes this for his long piece for The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. I've recommended this article before, and I'll keep doing it. It's a hard read, but important to know. In another opinion piece he wrote around the same time, This Town Needs a Better Class of Racist, he tackles the issue a different way. There's a loud and obnoxious, even N-word using racism that even conservatives shrink from associating with. But there's also a more subtle type of racism that works under the surface to keep black and white people separate. It's a distinction without a difference. He writes, If you sought to advantage one group of Americans over another, you could scarcely choose a more graceful method than housing discrimination. And that is exactly what black families found when they moved to northern cities. The Federal Housing Authority, created in 1934 to help boost America up out of the Great Depression, allowed for and even encouraged restrictive covenants that limited the purchase of homes in certain areas to white families only. When that rule was struck down, they created a new system of grading neighborhoods, providing federally insured loans to areas with A through C grades and none to the D classification. The number of black families in the area was explicitly part of that grading system. The GI Bill assistance for first home buyers was available only to white soldiers. Black households looking to purchase had to buy their houses on contract from predatory home speculators who would pile up fees and repossess the house if a single payment was missed, no equity built. Real estate agents were explicitly racist. From 1934 to 1950, Article 34 of the Realtor Code of Ethics read, 
A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing to a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individuals whose presence will clearly be detrimental to the property values of the neighborhood. If, by the way, you're wondering when all of this changed, in many ways it hasn't. A U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development study shows that real estate and leasing agents still do not show minority home buyers and renters as many available properties as they do to white customers. Now, theoretically, all of this discrimination ended with the Fair Housing Act in 1968. NPR's Code Switch podcast, which I highly recommend, hosted by Shireen Marisol Maraji and Jean Demby, did an anniversary episode for the Fair Housing Act on April 10th, 2018. They called it Location, Location, Location. Lyndon Johnson wanted to pass the Fair Housing Act from the beginning of his term, but he was told by his advisors that he would have plenty of support for laws that were seen as addressing the problems of the South. But if he started to work on integrating northern neighborhoods, liberal people would not be on board. The act as it was passed was much more toothless than it was intended to be. It's true that it made a difference. Until 1968, it was completely legal to deny housing to someone based on their skin color. But the Fair Housing Act was also supposed to include provisions to help undo racial discrimination in housing, and that has not happened. It's hard to change what's been done in terms of building homes and establishing who owns them. It's not as though we passed that act and then started a game of musical chairs where every American got up out of their house, ran around, and then settled back down in a more integrated pattern. No, people were where they were, and the neighborhoods had been built and settled and zoned and maintained, and they tended to stay that way. Now, at various times, we've tried to work around to mitigate discrimination in housing by other means. Rather than reintegrating neighborhoods, remember that musical chairs trick is pretty hard to pull off, we have tried to bring people to the services they're missing out based on their neighborhood. That was the idea behind busing for school desegregation. Since housing segregation seemed like too big a lift, what if we moved the kids around? The reaction of white liberal America pretty much gave the game away. Nicole Hannah-Jones is an expert on racial injustice who writes for the New York Times. She wrote about this issue again last July after Kamala Harris called out Joe Biden for his historic opposition to busing. Check the notes for a link to the article. She wrote, 65 years after the Supreme Court struck down school segregation in Brown versus the Board of Education, black children are as segregated from white students as they were in the mid-1970s. In fact, even calling it busing, and meaning that weird failed effort to do with an uncomfortable thing and break up neighborhood schools, is bizarre. Most students ride buses. No one opposes that. What homeowners in white neighborhoods with tax bases that support excellent public schools really objected to was mixing their kids in with black children, diluting the privilege they reserved for themselves by sharing some of their wealth and opportunity with people who were already starting from behind. The South had, and still has, a lot of overt racial issues that get studied in textbooks and remembered with a twist of the stomach every time you see someone driving a truck with a Confederate flag in the window. But we have racism here in the Midwest and the North, too. We don't tend to say the quiet part out loud, but it's just as pervasive and just as problematic. Today, the most segregated places in the country are all blue states. Liberal states and cities in the North, like Madison, don't tend to pass explicitly discriminatory laws, but we also consistently make choices that mean that black kids won't sit next to white kids in school and that black families won't live in the same neighborhoods as white ones. So. That is a lot of dark American history I've just dunked us in. It's no fun to contemplate how we got into this mess and what a lot of work it will take to redress centuries of oppression and discrimination. Like I said at the top, I don't know how to fix these problems. 
but here are a few things we can start with. We can learn more about the issue. I'm going to recommend a few podcasts you can check out that focus on these issues more than I do. Some of these are podcasts I've listened to for a while, and some are shows I've just discovered in the last few days while digging into this topic more. A few are by white hosts, but many are by black or POC teams. First off, NPR's Code Switch. Start with the episode I already mentioned, Location, 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 from April 10th, 2018, to get their take on the housing issue in America, but any episode of theirs will be thoughtful and informative. Also check out While Black, which calls itself a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and sometimes the raw on anything happening while black. The episode closest to what I'm talking about today is from September 15th, 2018, Where is My 40 Acres and a Mule? Housing Discrimination and Wealth Building, While Black. For more on the Fair Housing Act and its origins, listen to East Bay Yesterday. The host, Liam O'Donohue, isn't a person of color, but his fascinating episode from January 7th this year, Unfair Housing, Why Real Estate and Racism Are So Hard to Untangle, is a profile of the life and work of Byron Rumford, an African-American state assemblyman who championed the California Fair Housing Act. If you just want to inject a little more alternate perspective into your podcast feed, here are a few shows I love that come from people who don't look just like me. Amplify Melanated Voices. I still try to keep up with my Chicago news, and I do that by listening to Jen White's Reset podcast from Chicago Public Radio. She's an excellent radio journalist who keeps up with current events and adds valuable insight and commentary. The NPR Politics podcast pulls from a pool of topic specialists, so who you hear depends on what they're covering. But they often include Sam Sanders, Aisha Roscoe, and Asma Khalid. I also enjoy how many of their regulars are women. I remember an episode a few weeks ago where a discussion between three female reporters about the White House was briefly interrupted by kid noises in the background. When the mom-slash-journalist apologized, they all three laughed and said how they could relate to the challenge of working and parenting, especially during a pandemic, then smoothly shifted back to expert political coverage. Honestly, it made my whole day to hear that. Sam Sanders also hosts his own bi-weekly interview show, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. It's well worth a listen. And lastly, I recommend the What a Day podcast from Crooked Media. Hosts Akilah Hughes and Gideon Resnick joke and commentate through some serious subject matter. It's interesting to me to hear the news delivered without NPR seriousness by people my own age. If you have podcast recommendations, I would love to hear them. Let me know on Instagram at MedModMidWest, and I'll add them to next week's episode. So we can listen and learn. What else? We can offer support. Consider making a donation to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, to Black Lives Matter, to the ACLU, or your local bail fund. If you're not sure what that is, check out The Bail Project. I'll put links in the show notes for all of these. We can get mad. Call your representatives. I'd say ask what they're going to do about working for systemic change, but you won't get them on the phone. So leave a message, and don't forget to state your name and address so they know you live in their district. If they aren't listening, we can vote. If you have a primary coming up, vote in it. And if you have to wait till November, keep your feelings hot and don't forget the down-ticket issues. State and local government are really important. Finally, here's something for all of us mid-century homeowners. We can support density. Remember that musical chairs game? It's hard to change the build environment, but we can add to it. It happens. Become part of the YIMBY, or Yes in My Backyard, movement. Anytime there's a call for new development in your area, Try to make sure that it's as dense as possible and includes space for low-income families as well as luxury apartments and condos. Encourage mixed-use infill developments, with shopping and residential areas stacked on top of each other near busier, walkable, or bussable thoroughfares. And when you're planning a remodel, 
Look into your city's ADU, or Accessory Dwelling Unit, regulations. You could add a basement apartment, a granny flat, or a converted garage, and create another space for a separate household to live on your property. That's all for now, folks. Head over to midmod-midwest.com slash 309 to find the links I've mentioned and see an outline of what we've covered in this episode. So long for now, Midmod Remodelers. I'll be back to our regularly scheduled Midmod coverage next week.